Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with more civilian deaths in Gaza as Israeli ground forces move into the north and destroy tunnels in a campaign that may be over much sooner than the months that Netanyahu recently announced. Joining us to discuss the war's impact on domestic politics is M.J. Rosenberg, who worked on Capitol Hill for various Democratic members of the House and Senate for 20 years. Previously, he served as the Director of Policy Analysis for the Israel Policy Forum and was an editor of Near East Report, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC's bi-weekly publication on Middle East policy. He currently blogs at MJX. 847.substack.com, where his latest posts include For Dems, The Politics of Gaza Are Awful, and APAC Goes to Town. Then we'll examine the role of the Council for National Policy, founded by right-wing fundamentalists and oil barons, which was key to electing Trump and has backed Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker, with fossil fuel money. Joining us is Ann Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Prize for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And we'll discuss her article at the Washington Spectator, How Christian Nationalists, Big Oil and the Big Lie Seized the Speaker's Gavel. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is M. Jane Rosenberg, who worked on Capitol Hill for various Democratic members of the House and Senate for 20 years. Previously, he served as Director of Policy Analysis for the Israel Policy Forum and was an editor of Near East Report, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC's bi-weekly publication on Middle East policy. He currently blogs at mjx847.substack.com, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. And his latest posts include For Dems, The Politics of Gaza Are Awful, and APAC Goes to Town. Welcome to Background Briefing, M.J. Rosenberg. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And this is obviously a difficult time for American Jews, and particularly those that have always supported a two-state solution. And while they love Israel, they also have compassion for the Palestinians, but this is not a time where 
there's a lot of sh- compassion being shown to the Palestinians. And my understanding is that if you follow Israeli media itself, there's very little coverage of what's actually happening in Gaza in terms of uh, the collateral damage, as they say. But nevertheless, on our television screens, we are seeing, and you've written about it today, what's it, 8,500 dead and, and what, 3,500 dead children? In yeah, and, and, and that was um, that was last night's numbers. So, you know, and there's a terrible bombardment going on right now. Uh, so those numbers are outdated already. It's, it's it's just continuous and uh yeah it's just it's it's just awful and uh, i i don't know how anyone can defend this war i mean if you, i mean if you, the sheer numbers i mean 1400 people were killed that was an absolutely absolutely monstrous monstrous act but if 1400 being killed is 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 monstrous what's 8000 that's going to be a lot more than 8000 it's just as weird. Uh, it's it. The, the whole thing is 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 shocking to me. It's also shocking to me that um, the Israeli people would be willing to allow their uh, the, allow their sons. The women don't serve in combat uh, positions in Israel. Uh, allow their sons or send their sons, you know, to fight in this war, which is going to accomplish absolutely nothing but carnage on both sides, much more on the, on the Palestinian side. But, you know, to have your kid die in a war for nothing? Everyone knows they're not going to defeat Hamas. They're not going to extirpate Hamas, you know, or exterminate Hamas. Hamas is going to be there and have to be dealt with uh, in any case. This is, in my opinion totally pointless and savage. I just don't get it. Well, one of the reasons why, apparently, the hideous murder of Israeli citizens, women and children, old and young, and those young people celebrating at a music festival, one of the main reasons it happened, as far as I understand, is that Netanyahu and his national security minister, Ben Gvir, sent three battalions of soldiers that were normally on the Gaza border into the West Bank because the fundamentalist Jewish worshippers, the West Bank settlers, the religious ones, had a big convoy that went into Nablus to worship at Joseph's tomb. So Yeah, they he he even though he was warned, you know, the the uh the people um People from the kibbutz that was, you know, they experienced the massacre. There, you know, they called the military authorities, they called the government, and they said, "We're seeing strange things going on, on the other side of the border. Like, what's going on? You should look into this." And uh, 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 one minister, a uh, very right-wing minister, Avigdor Lieberman, uh, you know, told you know, prepared a whole paper about the dangers emanating from Gaza, and mentioned even that they might use the, uh, what do you call those airplanes that they flew over the wall with? Uh, he mentioned that they come over the wall, and it was ignored. It was a 10-page paper. So, yeah, and what you say about the... It, he chose instead to make it possible for the religious settlers on the West Bank to not have their religious celebration disturbed. And that was of more concern for him than the lives of the 
Jews, Israelis, you know, living in southern Israel. I mean, the, the, I, we're always appalled at the idea that Trump is still in office, was still, you know, survived his term. I would think that this guy should have been out of office the next day. Right. I mean, well, what I think that terrible malfeasance. It'll probably all happen after this. The, the dust is settled. I'm sure there'll be some retribution in Israel. Yeah. In terms of the electorate. But um, what do you make, though, of this intelligence report from the intelligence ministry, which is now being described by Netanyahu as a concept paper, but it basically lays out a strategy of continuing, you know, what wasn't finished in 1948, which is essentially the ethnic cleansing of Gaza, and that that is at least the aim in this paper. And it does seem, to some extent, the current strategy is going along with some of what's in this uh, intelligence paper because it looks as if the IDF is going to pound uh, the north of Gaza into rubble and occupy it and then drive everybody down into the south where they'll all be living in tents. So then the question will be, you know, who do they dump these people on? Oh, this is... um, I I saw that report and... uh... I have no doubt that's what their plan is. I don't think they'll be able to pull it off. I mean, where, where are they, they, you know, the Egyptians aren't going to let them, uh, you know, let the Palestinians come in. They're, they're we're pushing them up against against what? I mean, but as far as I, it's sort of like they don't seem to think things through. This whole war is about not thinking things through, like what happens the next day. But I think the goal, what they want, is exactly what you said: the complete ethnic cleansing. Well, we're seeing the ethnic cleansing of, that's a horrible phrase, but that's what it is, the ethnic cleansing of the North. And uh, ultimately, I think they would want the, the entire, the entire um, what they call the Gaza Strip, empty of Palestinians. After all, you can't separate Palestinians. They would say of Hamas. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. How, how do you tell if so, who, who, who is Hamas and who isn't Hamas? I mean... No, I think they really want to have some kind of a corridor that would be, and and the religious ones uh, are already pushing to um, bring, you know, build Jewish settlements again there. Remember, there were Jewish settlements there on 2005, and I guess it was 2005 when Ariel Sharon had them, um, you know, removed back to Israel, and uh, these these people want to come back and have a you know whole you know put all, uh, you know more. Nice sure. uh, government-subsidized housing, but filling up the Gaza Strip with it. Uh, it's, right. Yeah, Be- it's it's it's, it's beachfront nice. property, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so, it's, but it's, I don't necessarily think that MJ that I don't necessarily think that the Israeli military will fail in its objectives because it seems to me that they're already making significant progress in going after these tunnels and stuff. So, it's not inconceivable that this war could be over a lot quicker than even Netanyahu said it could take months. Do you, I mean, I take it you don't agree with that? Uh, no, I, you know, I don't agree with it, but only because I'm, you know, you're, maybe you're seeing things I, I haven't seen. I'm just more like relying on uh, conventional wisdom here, that uh, you know, which includes what Netanyahu says, that it could take months. I can't, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I it's... Uh, I kind of feel like anything's anything's possible. Okay, so uh, is there a larger uh, chance of them succeeding in succeeding in their goals, or of um, 
Hezbollah coming in, you know, or you know, Iran, you know, giving Hezbollah the, you know, Iran's restraining Hezbollah now and uh, saying, okay, it's uh, we can't we can't deal with this, you know, with with what's happening to to Muslim people. So I don't, you know, it should go either way. In any case, there is there's no contingency. That I can, or eventuality that I can imagine that does not involve more massive uh, deaths on the Gazan side. I really, I really don't. No, any, it's you know, it, it, for them to be able to go home and declare victory, what would that look like? I mean, it's uh, and the dehumanization of the, you know, basically, you know, the, the word Gaza means Palestinians. Uh, it's, you know, the way that's the way that everyone talks. It's like all Palestinians are um, Hamas. All Gaza is Hamas. Uh, hey, that they, they certainly have not made notice that Hamas is more popular in the West Bank than it is in Gaza. So it's um, it's you know when when Palestinians uh, and other um, and, and other people talk about. Uh, you know, Nakba too. I think it's possible. I guess that's what you're saying. You think it's possible too that they could mm-hmm. they could succeed in depopulating this uh, uh, this area, this area that they be, that they originally came wound up in uh, because of Nakba one. It's uh, it's. Well, uh, I just uh, I just think that one of the best armies in the world with the latest equipment with four hundred thousand men should be able to defeat. 30,000 fighters living in tunnels, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's possible. Um and uh the the the, the on, unless uh you know Biden somehow puts a stop to it, his his numbers are dropping precipitously. And I just saw today that you know article in RS it was based on some poll that Arab Americans and Muslims have dropped, you know, their support for Biden in the next election have dropped dramatically. Uh, what about that's also would be true of uh, other groups um, and progressive, including progressive Jews and progressive Protestants and Catholics and anything else. I mean, it's uh, this is not the kind of presidency Biden would have envisioned and would want. And especially when you have the um, you know progressives, what are the progressives in the Democratic Party asking for? They're asking for a ceasefire. How does a president of the United States uh, reject the idea of ceasefire, which to most people seems like a neutral position, because it essentially is. Uh, but APAC um, is out there. Uh, I, I got a I got a, uh, a email from them yesterday, uh, urging me to. Uh, Send money to defeat 16 Democratic progressive congressmen who refused to sign the letter that APAC wrote, a one-sided letter, you know, condemning, uh, you know, condemning what happened um, uh, on October 7th, but then going on and just reporting, you know, re- repeating all of Israel's lines and ending with, like, victory for Israel and all that. And the, these 16, mostly minority, mostly African-Americans, Latinos, uh, and women, uh, they're, they're targeting them. At the same time, they're you know they're they're raising money for you know Josh Hawley and the uh, Ted Cruz and the new Speaker of the House. Uh, I think they you know they, they, they I think Biden has so Biden has to watch over one shoulder of it at the progressives who are the basic you know 
basic constituency of the Democratic Party, but then there's the APAC funders. Mm-hmm. Not the Jewish vote. Jewish vote is too, it's not the Jewish vote. It's this particular group of APAC people who, you know, who are billionaires and give lots of money to campaigns, and uh, they're ready, they already know who they're running for. So do you think that Biden has a suicide pact with Netanyahu because he hates Netanyahu and all he stands for? He hates for? him. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he has a suicide pact, uh, if a suicide, but it could end up being that. He, he thinks he can handle Netanyahu. Um, you, know, you know, that smother him with love stuff uh, that he did, uh, it's not working. Um, I think that Biden, like most politicians, the only, the only thing he really cares about is getting reelected. So I mean, if it's if it's if it's his long friendship with uh, Netanyahu, supposedly who he now hates, uh, which I believe, or his you know love affair with Israel, or that he was friends with Golda Meir in 1970, or or whatever, that'll all go by the wayside if his numbers drop too precipitously. And I kind of hope they do, because it'll make him change course. Because with politicians, nothing makes them change course. If they think it's you know it, 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 the way worrying sure. about re-election does. Yeah, but MJ, you you surely don't want Trump to be the next president, do you? Oh no, I'm not. Oh no, there's no situation in which I wouldn't vote for uh, Biden. Uh, and I, I I don't think those polls. I think those polls are accurate as of today. But I'm sure those people who are saying they wouldn't vote for him are going to come back. Uh, but right, just for him, for a politician to see right now that his numbers are dropping like that. And and then he's going to have to work harder to get them back. But right. no, absolutely. I mean, Democrats have made this mistake before. I mean, and we got Donald Trump once as a result of, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left who said, I can't stand Hillary Clinton. And they stayed home and uh, we got, you know, Donald Trump. No, I, that's unforgivable, especially after it happened once. But no, I'm right. just saying that it'll, that it'll, it, it, it's got to worry Biden just to see you know, just to see his numbers drop. Sure. Well, just back to Netanyahu, though. He made a speech on Saturday that was quite blood-curdling, and he referred to the book of Samuel, where the prophet Samuel tells Saul that God wants him to take revenge on the Amalekites. Uh, mm-hmm. for, and it's Samuel says to Saul, quote, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So... What the hell is he saying there? I mean, that's just genocidal. Yeah, it is, and it, it is it, it is genocidal talk. It's it's uh, I you know it's sometimes you'll hear like um, you know Iranian or Saudi um, uh, uh, ministers or mullahs or whatever where they you know they quote that kind of thing from their from their books, from the Quran or whatever, from their texts, and the Israelis go crazy and say, oh, look, they're invoking, he's invoking, uh, you know, God to justify genocide. Well, and, they, and, and Jews are probably very upset by that. Well, this concept of 
Amalek and the Amalekites, we Jews learn in school that they, whoever they were, were the worst people in the world and could only be dealt with through extermination, including their sheep and their cows and everything else eradicated from the face of the earth. And he invokes that. I mean, I, I mean, it's really amazing. I, I, it's, I don't, I, I, I don't know if anyone invoked the Amalekites when they were talking about Nazi Germany. After all, we didn't know one talked about going in and killing every single person who lived there. But to, it's a terrible, terrible analogy, and for a, 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 it's, and it's a ridiculous one. Unless, why is that in his mind? Why would he think? Why would he invoke that? Certainly, it was calculated. Right. And, 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 and the Israeli people hear it, and they say, oh, yeah, the Amalekites. And I, I, look, I don't, think, I don't think that Israel's plan is genocide. No, that's the Hamas and, the, and certainly um, the Ayatollahs in Tehran's plan is genocide. And that's the odd thing, you know, that you've got right-wing settlers wanting to get rid of the Palestinians and create a Jewish state in Judea and Samaria from the river to the sea, and right. Hamas and the Iranians saying they want an Islamic state between the river and the sea. So, right. God it's help us all. I, I, I'm afraid we are run out of time, but I thank you for joining us, MJ. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Ian. Uh, good to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with MJ Rosenberg, who worked on Capitol Hill for various Democratic members of the House and Senate for 20 years. Previously, he serves as the Director of Policy Analysis for the Israel Policy Forum and was an editor of Near East Report, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee's APAX bi-weekly publication on Middle East policy. And he currently blogs at mjx847.substack.com, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. And his latest posts there are For Dems, the politics of Gaza are awful, and APAC goes to town. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the role of the Council for National Policy, founded by right-wing fundamentalists and oil barons, which was key to electing Trump, and has backed Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker, with fossil fuel money. As some worn victory, some downfall, private reasons, great or small, can be seen in the eyes of those that call to make all that should be killed to crawl, while others say don't hate nothing at all except hatred. Disillusion words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Ann Nelson, who's the author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was a director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, and her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. 
now at an updated paperback version. And she has an article at the Washington Spectator, How Christian Nationalists, Big Oil, and the Big Lie Seized the Speaker's Gavel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Anne. And in your book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, you document the critical role of the Council for National Policy, the CNP, and it's extraordinary to realize how they finally scored such a big prize with capturing the speakership, but they've labored for decades, I'm quoting from your article, to purge the Republican Party of moderates and replace them with right-wing extremists, and none other than the CNP Board of Governors member Leonard Lear met with Trump in 2016 when his campaign was flailing and presented him with a list of ultra-conservative candidates for the federal judiciary. And then the CNP sent uh, strategists, they rallied thousands of mega-Christian leaders to New York City on behalf of Trump's struggling campaign. So take us back to that moment, if you will, and just to show how much they put Trump in the White House and the deal, of course, involved having to take on Mike Pence as the vice president. Sure. Well, for those of us who are old enough to remember, um, when when Trump emerged from the primaries as the front runner in May of 2016, uh, it really caused a great deal of surprise because he basically emerged as as a reality show candidate. And that meant in terms of traditional political operations. He didn't have strategists. He didn't have a, a ground game with canvassers to go door to door. Um, he had a lot of the fundamentalist and, and evangelical voters who were never Trumpers because they regarded him as sinful. And he didn't have a war chest. So then you have this moment of desperation with both the fundamentalist voting blocks under organized under Ralph Reed and other members of the Council for National Policy. Uh, Tony Perkins was another person who was uh, central in this effort, as well as the Pope brothers uh, and other fossil fuel interests. So they had to sit down and, and figure out whether their never Trumper uh, beliefs were stronger than their anti Hillary beliefs, and they finally decided to go with Trump. So there was this in this really remarkable meeting in New York City in June of 2016, where a lot of the fundamentalist leadership, including Tony Perkins um, and Ralph Reed, gathered these 1,000 evangelical leaders from across the country. Uh, it was kind of a, a dog and pony show set up for Trump's benefit, where the local leaders had to be convinced that Trump was going to be their guy. And behind the scenes, Tony Perkins and the others cut this deal. They said, we'll give you the war chest. We'll give you the ground game. We'll give you the strategist. And we can, we can bump your numbers considerably in the swing states that will get you the electoral college. But in return, you let us name the candidates for the federal courts. You appoint us to your religious advisory council. And you let us write social policy platforms for the Republican National Convention. And Trump said, fine. I mean, he didn't really care about any of these issues, not the judges, not the social policies, 
uh, not the religious council. Um, you know, I mean, for the religious council was more scandalous than people understand because in prior times, I mean, Obama had a religious advisory council, but he had Christians, Jews, Muslims, Christians were Protestants and Catholics. He, he, he had a, a council that represented the country. Trump's Evangelical Advisory Council was all evangelical. So none of the diversity, the religious diversity of the country was represented. And this gave them free reign to have an inordinate amount of influence over the policies and the federal judiciary appointments and all of the other ways that they have tilted the government in, in, in their direction. So, Anne, let's now talk about uh, MAGA Mike Johnson, whose career path runs parallel, in effect, to Donald Trump going back to 2016. He'd served one year in the Louisiana state legislature, and he ran for Congress when Trump ran for the presidency. Yeah. Um, and, and when he emerged as Speaker of the House last week, uh, there were quite a few people who said, Mike who? Uh, he's a fairly junior member of the House of Representatives. He is not noted for anything other than his efforts on behalf of Trump uh, in terms of trying to uh, overthrow the election. Uh, he, he was the lead uh, representative uh, on, on the amicus brief that uh, over 120 members, Republicans in the House of Representatives filed with the Supreme Court to try to overthrow the election. They, they failed. And otherwise, uh, Mike Johnson is just a very hardline, extremely anti-LGBT individual. Um, and, you know, he's, he's made a number of remarks that have been surfacing where he's tried to, you know, he's, he's endorsed outlawing homosexuality uh he has he has stated that he, we, he thinks he, we should reverse the laws enabling marriage equality and it goes on and on he's also in the pocket of big oil he's gotten major contributions from the fossil fuels industries including the coke industries so he's very much of their ilk now what was interesting was that since i've been following the Council for National Policy now for you know over six years. Uh, I decided to look at the videos from their secret meetings, which have been posted by a group called Documented. And lo and behold, there is Mike Johnson giving a speech before the secret meeting at the CNP in October 2019. And uh, the link to it is in my Washington Spectator piece. What's interesting is that the executive director of the CNP, Bob McEwen, gets up in his introduction and says, well, we're going to be taking the House next year in 2020. Uh, that's the plan. And when we do, we're going to need new leadership. And I can't imagine anyone better than Mike Johnson in terms of representing our values. So already in 2019, he's flagging Mike Johnson as their favorite son in terms of the House speakership. So you go through this whole song and dance in the House of Representatives with Kevin McCarthy and the way that they hamstrung him. And then as they went through all of these other possible candidates until they landed on Mike Johnson, who seems like kind of a milk toast. 
He seems like this kind of agreeable guy, but in terms of his policies, he's an absolute extremist and has draconian ideas about social policy. And yet here they were in 2019 saying he was their president. And again, Bob McEwen, then the executive director of the Council for National Policy, a former congressman, he resigned from Congress because of a scandal of cutting checks. Um, and he, together with Tony Perkins, were involved in the cover-up of another protege of theirs, Wesley Goodman, who was accused of molesting an 18-year-old stepson of the Council on National Policy member during one of its meetings. Then Goodman then uh, successfully runs for the Ohio State House, but in 2015, and uh, on an anti-gay, pro-family values platform, and then of course uh, Goodman is accused of stalking some 30 men and boys on social media platforms and having consensual sex with a male in his congressional office. And in 2017, Goodman was obliged to resign from public office. So this is not necessarily across the board in terms of. Christian evangelicals, but what is this obsession they have against homosexuality when many of them are closet uh, gays and uh, like this character I just mentioned? And there's another one we can talk about as well in your article. Yeah, and, and in my book, Shadow Network, there are even more cases that surface. Um, and I am not a psychologist, but I've talked to some about this subject, and I've talked to friends who are gay who grew up in evangelical households. And I think that, you know, I mean, I, I do think that there's a certain amount of tragedy in some of this in terms of the individuals, because, you know, if they're gay, they live in such an atmosphere of disapproval and contempt and hatred that they kind of go to the opposite extreme to try to prove that they're on you know the winning side as it were and i can't imagine what tortured souls they must be within um so uh yeah i think that by being outspokenly anti-gay they pass within their families and their churches and their communities but I would think at a terrible cost to their psyche. Well, of course, Kelly Johnson, the wife of Mike Johnson, she runs a non-profit Onward Christian Education Services uh, and Onward Christian Counseling, and she's had to scrub her website because of the virulent anti-gay stuff that she put up there about uh, gays being involved in bestiality, etc., but the other person that you that crosses paths with Mike Johnson, who's also in this kind of peculiar gay bashing world at the same time being involved with clandestine uh, sexual activity, is this character that you write about, Paul Pressler, Houston-based judge of the Texas Court of Appeals, who set up a law school in Johnson, Mike Johnson, it was going to be the dean of this law school. And then later, of course, Pressler gets busted for inappropriate uh, behavior with a 14-year-old student in his Sunday school class, uh, accused of raping him repeatedly over the following decades. So 
fill us in a little bit more on well this uh, was not uh paul i mean the, the law school was named after paul pressler uh i mean i don't know that it was technically his law school it was named after him um and he was present at various functions but the lawsuit involving the 14 year old sunday school student um that lawsuit is actually ongoing in houston uh the young man's name was Dwayne Rollins. And it's really, I, I write about it in Shadow Network. Um, not, not only did it go on over decades, uh, Pressler recruited, he, he, he has accused Pressler of recruiting him from his Sunday school class, bringing him to his home while, while Pressler's wife is present and having his way with him. And, you know, it, it, Rollins claims that, that this experience basically ruined his life. Um, he fell into substance abuse and, and had grave difficulties until he finally got um, some kind of counseling. And then other men came forward um, and, and said that they'd had the same experience or similar related experiences with Presser. So again, uh, I open a shadow network with Paul Pressler, the judge in Houston, and his colleague Paige Patterson, who uh, headed the the uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Dallas. And when I was researching the book, I went to the seminary, and they actually had stained glass windows to Pressler and his wife, and uh, as I recall, his dog in the seminary as well as one to Patterson and his wife. Now, Patterson had to resign under a cloud because he had had sexual abuse reported to him at the seminary and basically took no action. And so since I wrote the book, the whole set of sexual scandals in the Southern Baptist Convention have blown up. Robert Downen, then at the Houston Chronicle, did an amazing investigative job tracking various cases. Um, and, and as I've written, uh, a lot of the origins of the Council for National Policy lay with the Southern Baptist Convention and other fundamentalist churches uh, that were really seeking to roll back federal regulations that affected their communities in the South. So, but nevertheless, Mike Johnson was supposed to be the first head of this Christian law school in Shreveport, the Pressler School of Law, right? And he doesn't mention that mm-hmm. now in his in his bio. No, his congressional biography doesn't mention that that ever existed. Correct. Hmm. Well, and he was publicly named dean. But law school never never opened its doors. It had various uh, financial and administrative malfeasance. Um, so it's part of. Johnson's past that he has not wanted to advertise. Well, let's talk about the fact that he represents Shreveport, which is, it's all about fossil fuels and the oil patch. And and interesting enough, this first act in Speaker of the House, he's now trying to pass legislation to help the fossil fuel industry at the same time cut money for the IRS, which has a plan to make it easier for citizens to file taxes for free, which, you know, H&R Block and these other turbo tax companies um, 
are lobbying hard against, but essentially the first cuts are coming from the IRS's ability to get revenues from rich Americans who don't pay their taxes. So he's certainly a servant of the fossil fuel industries and big money. He's right out of the gate making that clear. So what do we know? I mean, isn't there an obvious link there between the fact that he's a global warming denier and all of this uh, fossil fuel money that's uh, fueled his political career so far? Absolutely. And as as I point out in my Washington Spectator piece, uh, his ties to the fossil fuel industries are are apparent. Um, In his Council for National Policy speech, he's very coy. He says, oh, last night I just happened to get invited to a private little dinner with Charles Koch and his favorite conservative donors. uh, That is a tell. And as it happens, of all of his campaign contributions, the industry that has contributed the most is the oil and gas industry. And of that contribution, over 10% comes from Coke, Coke Industries. So that's where his bread is buttered. And I think you would say that he's been uh, an attentive servant of <laughs> those industries. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's not that much of a surprise. Uh, you know, there's a whole body of congressmen, especially since you have the involvement of dark money in the picture after Citizens United, where the dark money organizations, such as those in the Coke Network, um, are pouring money into these campaigns. And... If they want to stay in office, they pretty much have to give obeisance to to uh, the people who are, are paying the bills. So I think until you deal systematically with dark money and, and campaign finance reform, uh, this is going to be an ongoing problem. Well, one of the uh, people that advises Mike Johnson, apparently, is this phony historian, uh, David Barton who has made up this history of, of how uh, the United States is a Judeo-Christian nation anointed by God and all the founding fathers. They didn't want to protect the government from the church. They wanted to protect the church from government. Uh, so he's turned the whole idea of the, the separation be- uh, between church and state and the wall that Jefferson created. And, of course, we know from the real history that the Founding Fathers came out of an environment with religious wars in Europe and the the vestiges of the witch-burning in Salem, etc., and Tom Paine, of course, the the intellectual spark of the revolution itself was an atheist uh, who said that belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. And that seems to describe a lot of these Southern Baptist evangelicals, uh, particularly this new crowd that is so militant and full of hatred and vengeance. And uh, this guy is now their spear carrier. And David Barton is still advising him and helping him staff up his speaker's office. And Barton describes his protege, Mike Johnson, as being a man with a very pleasant smile, but a killer instinct. So I think people forget that this 
presentable, friendly face was also behind the scenes working to scuttle the previous speaker who, who got the nomination, Tom Emmer, by running around telling all of his colleagues on the Christian right inside the Congress that <laughs> reminding them that Tom Emmer had voted uh, for gay marriage. And that was what undid Tom Emmer, and he then resigned, and then suddenly this guy comes out of nowhere and is the next speaker. So for all of his piety, he's a real political operator, this guy. Yeah, you know, I, I as it happened, I, I gave a talk at New York Cathedral of St. John the Divine on Sunday. And, uh, you know, I was obviously thinking about this subject as I prepared it. And it struck me that, that this cohort uh, of fundamentalists are very wedded to the Old Testament and the concept of the, the you know, God the Father, God of wrath, who shall smite you down, um, take revenge, uh, a, a, you know, a jealous God. Uh, really, <laughs> you know, you can, you can pull quotes from the Old Testament that are, that are quite appropriate for Halloween. Um, and they don't seem to pay any attention at all to the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor, uh, you know, blessed are the meek, uh, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me. They don't, they don't like that part. They don't mention it. And in fact, their vengeful God seems to be taking revenge against the poor and the meek and the children. So, yeah, the, the theology gets very convoluted here. Well, but what you just said is exactly what his priorities are, Mike Johnson. He's out to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which, of course, is for the poor. And so you'll have a lot of poor children and families in this country if this guy gets his way. I mean, that's Oh, one yeah, of his if priorities. it's in the Beatitudes, he's against it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the so the so Gospel of Saint Matthew's is a lot of. Right. Huh? I said the Gospel of Saint Matthew's is is not in his Bible that he carries around with him. Yeah, I'm not. Well, and you know, one thing that I've noticed in in reporting on these people uh, over the years is that a lot of times they don't seem to know their Bible very well, uh, and in fact. You know, as, as somebody who cares a lot about accuracy, and you know, as you know, you know, my 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 writing is just filled with footnotes. If you want to know where I got something, go to the footnotes. There's the video. There's the time code. There's the whole source, and they are so sloppy, and also dishonest. Um, so you mentioned David Barton, who is somebody that Mike Johnson relies on a lot. Barton has written all of these books purporting to be of American history. And I, I actually read some. And he has things like, well, Columbus was actually, uh, you know, uh, Columbus wasn't involved with slavery. Columbus was a good guy. Well, I mean, Columbus helped to institute slavery in the New World, uh, you know, as, as soon as he landed. I mean, uh, he just he they just play fast and loose with the facts and the ways that they bend them always come out uh, to the benefit of these white males in history. No matter what they did, 
they always end up portraying them as though everything they did was right. And that's where this absolutism comes in. They say, every word of the Bible is literally true because it was dictated by God, right? With no sense of historicity whatsoever. Every word of the Constitution is sacred because it was from the founders. Well, you're overlooking, you know, these inconveniences of women and, and not voting and African-Americans being slaves and everything else that was the norm of the time and had to be revised for human progress. So the intellectual dishonesty in their package of ideas is truly dismaying. But in terms of their basic philosophy, though, aren't they totally in keeping with Leonard Leo and his philosophy, which is moral authoritarianism and laissez-faire capitalism, and that is describes the kind of people that he's put on the Supreme Court, all six, in fact, of the ultra-conservative majority of the Supreme Court seem to follow in that along those lines. And the history of Mike Johnson is one of moral authoritarianism and laissez-faire capitalism to the point where he doesn't care about our children and grandchildren in terms of global warming. Uh, the more you pump out of the oil fields in Louisiana, the better for him and his sponsors. So the thing that bothers me about these, you know, holy rollers and Bible bashers is that they want to control us. And he's now the third most powerful person in the country. So does it bother you, Anne, that this guy is out to control us? Or do you believe that? Because well, I certainly do. Um, well, you, you just raised a lot of complex issues in one sentence. Um, and I just, you know, I, I just tweeted something yesterday uh, that, you know, thought that arose from this work, which is that, you know, in the past, the Southern Baptists and the Pentecostals and the New Apostolic Reformation and the conservative Catholics, uh, as you as you noted, they were, you know, the sects were, were killing each other in Europe. Um, and certainly in the United Kingdom in the past. And one reason the country was founded and constructed the way it was in the United States was to say we can live together in an atmosphere of tolerance for any religion or lack of religion. You know, that's how the founders defined religious freedom. So that idea has been taken by all of these groups you know, religious freedom means their ability to impose their religion on everyone else, which is really turning it on its head. Um, but that's what faux historians like David Barton do. Um, in terms of their ultimate goals, I do think that, as I say, it's fueled by the fossil fuels industries. Because, you know, again, when you, when you go to these churches, and see who's actually there. I grew up among them. And I must say that, that these people didn't really have the will or the means or the strategy to propel this movement. I think you had to get the big money from the fossil fuels industries and the others, along with political strategists like Ralph Reed pushing it. I don't think it's 
I think that, that the religious element is an instrument that's used to win their political will. But I also have no doubt that once, you know, if we allow them to take over all three branches of government, they will not relinquish power voluntarily. Well, Annie, you've described uh, what I was trying to suggest much more eloquently than me in terms of why I fear these people so much. But just in closing here, Senate Democrats plan to subpoena the Republican megadonor Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo. And this, of course, finally, I guess, Sheldon Whitehouse has managed to get Dick Durbin off the dime here. And what do you think is going to happen there? Clearly, Leo does not want to go public and be in any way answerable to anybody except his billionaire buddies. Well, I'm, I am somewhat uh, certain of what's going to happen, which is that Leonard Leo and his allies will uh, continue to engage in a lot of whataboutism. And anything that has to do with Harlan Crow or the Kochs or anyone else, they will say, oh, but there are Democratic mega donors too, which is true. But the Democrats didn't try to overthrow an election. I mean, they kind of leave out the essential part. But then departing from that, I'm afraid we're going into another year of a real bare knuckle struggle for the future of democracy, not just in the United States, but in as much as the United States is an indicator for the world, I think it has vast consequences. So I would bet good money that that's what we're looking at. And once again, the level of civic engagement across the country, especially in swing states, is going to be of momentous importance. And many people describe uh, what's happened to much of this country since they don't teach civics anymore, that we have a kind of civic desert. So that is clearly tied in with the enormous amount of ignorance that's pervaded via social media, etc. So... But look at what they're doing. The people who try to teach civics, the public schools, the public school teachers, the public school librarians, they are under direct attack. Of course. That's not a coincidence. These people don't want civics Oh, yeah. These these are, you know, public servants who do a lot of work for very little money, and they're being shamefully attacked simply because these people don't want our children learning civics. Well, Ann Nelson, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Good luck to us all. (laughs) Indeed. And again, I'll be speaking with Ann Nelson, who's an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Prize as Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She serves as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, and the latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she has an article at the Washington Spectator, How Christian Nationalists, Big Oil, and the Big Lie Seized the Speaker's Gavel. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by